Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? We're in uh, the letter of 1 Peter this morning. There should be going around some little handouts, sermon outline to make sure that I kind of stay on track and follow the passage and to help you along as we do that. All right, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dig in to God's word together. Father, we do ask this time, Lord, that you would be gracious to our souls. Father, we need to hear from you. Christ, we need you, our good shepherd, to shepherd our souls. Lord, I'm tired and I'm weak, and I need you to speak through me for these dear ones here this morning. We need your grace. We need Jesus. And we pray that he would be prominent this morning as he is in the text, that he would become in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start this morning with a rhetorical question. I uh, only say that you're a smart crowd. You probably would have figured it was a rhetorical question, but just on the off chance that somebody might have blurted out an answer, I didn't want you to ruin my sermon you know, and completely, you know, like, all right, let's pack it in, let's go home now. But the question I want you to ponder right now is what comes to your mind when you hear the word or you think of the term blessing? What comes to mind when you hear the word blessing? A blessing is often equated, however you might describe it, with the good life right? Getting stuff is I think about when people say they're blessed. It's a word that gets used a lot, especially um, in the church. I'm so blessed. What do do we mean when we speak about blessing? You know, usually health, people will talk about they're blessed because they're, they're healthy or man, they're killing it in their job. They love their work and they're just blessed to have this job. Uh, or they got a new car that's rocking, they're super excited about, so they're blessed. Probably already given it away, but I'm from America. (laughs) Oftentimes, the terminology, the American dream, comes to mind, I think, when people think of blessing. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but general ideas of, you know, stuff, and health and having harmonious relationships, a hassle-free life. In some Christian circles, the idea of blessing has no connection at all to struggle, persecution, or difficulties of any kind. If you've been with us long, you know as we're trudging through 1 Peter that suffering and difficulties are prominent in the letter. He's addressing a suffering church. He refers to them as aliens and sojourners. This isn't the kind of language used for people who are nestled down, loving life, living the American dream or the European dream or whatever. So you see on your outline, you see the sermon title and my My sermon title is sort of a a riff, a little play on a book title. 
So the, the, the title for this morning's sermon is Your Blessed Life Now and Later. But your blessed life now, it, 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 it's, I'm, I'm sort of messing with the title of a book by a pastor in America named Joel Osteen, prosperity gospel guy who wrote a book maybe a decade ago called Your Best Life Now, right? Your Best Life Now. And he's written several books. One of them is Every Day is a Friday. You get the idea from, from just those titles, um, the, the massive confusion about blessing and prosperity. Um, now, I think I can say this morning, and I'll show you as we look at the text, that we can say our blessed life now. Now, I couldn't say your best life now, because your best life, if you're a Christian, your best life cannot be now. It will not be now. You will spend 99.9999999, you see where I'm going, percent of your life in eternity with Christ in glory. That's your best life. Not now. But Peter does call us to live in light of the blessing to come, the eternal salvation and, and, and presence of God forever and ever, to live in light of that blessing now and to be a people of blessing. In the text that we're looking at this morning, Peter is calling us to love one another in the church, and he's calling us to bless those who persecute us. So this is the way I would kind of summarize the message this morning. It's there as the thesis statement on your outline. The blessing of the gospel calls us. It demands us to bless those who hate us. If we don't bless our enemies, hear this. That's what I think the text is saying to us this morning. If we don't bless our enemies, those who hate us, those who do us harm, we will not inherit the blessing of life with God forever. Did you, did you catch that? Our passage this morning, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, concludes and continues a section that began back in 2.11, flowing out of the amazing passage of 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, which Matt preached very well several weeks back that describes who we are as the people of God, that we are the temple of the living God, right? We are the place where the triune God, we, we are his habitation. He dwells in our midst. And we are simultaneously priests in that temple. Like that blows my mind, right? When the Bible starts mixing metaphors, it's because what it's talking about is so freaking awesome <laughs> that words can't even contain the glory of what we are as the people of God, okay? And then he goes on uh, in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter 2 to say, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of, of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then from there in verse 13, he goes into a section where he speaks about how that should be worked out 
in our lives living under the, uh, the authority of the government. So to submit to governing authorities. In, in 2.18 and following, he focuses on servants submitting to masters. In chapter 3, 1 through 6, he focuses on wives to husbands. And then in 3.7, which we looked at last week, he focuses on husbands living with their wives in an understanding way. And now he zooms back out as he's, as he's referenced and focused specifically different groups. Now he's speaking to everyone again. Okay, so look with me at our passage this morning. Chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Finally... All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing, or we might paraphrase it, in order that you might inherit the blessing of eternal life. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So point number one is love toward our church family. Verse eight focuses on our love within. This is very similar to what I preached several weeks back in, in 1, 22 through 25, the call to love one another. Now, this is kind of demonstrating a little bit of my geekiness, um, but the description here, there's five terms, okay? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Look at your outline there. These words, I think, are arranged in a chiastic, in a chiastic manner. Does anybody know what a chiasm is? Anybody know what a chiasm is? Okay. Wow. Okay. So, you see, and I did this because I figured that might be the case. See, in parentheses, there is the Greek letter chi or chi, depending on how you pronounce the alphabet. Okay, and you can see it looks kind of like an English X. And you see what I've done underneath that where you have A, B, C, and then B prime, A prime. So the first and the last term are parallel. The second and the fourth term are parallel. And then at the heart of it, at the center of this arrangement of these words is the most important term. And, and this is typical. Uh, uh, really, it's typical of, of, uh, of Hebrew literature. This is how a lot of narratives are actually organized like this. For instance, um, I don't want to get off uh, on a rabbit trail here. Uh, I teach the Old Testament uh, at a seminary, so I don't want to... I'm already doing it, aren't I? I'm, 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 I've seen the rabbit, and I'm going after it. You know, but if you look, if you look at the flood narrative, for instance... Uh, of Genesis 6 through 9, it is an elaborate chiasm that at the center of it is God saying, it, it, it's the statement that God remembered Noah. It's his covenant promise, so it's glorious. So it's not surprising that Peter, who's a Jew, he writes like this. And at the heart of what he's saying, and he's saying how we're to live together as the people of God, at the heart of it is brotherly love, brotherly love. 
And sympathy and, and, and tender heart is, are parallel. They're very similar ideas and unity of mind and humble mind are very similar. So love is central to how we live together in light of the gospel. The terms are flanked. The terms, I'm sorry, that flank brotherly love here really unpack the nature of this love. Above in 3.7, Peter calls husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Here he is essentially saying that that's how we're supposed to live within the body of Christ. In terms of um, unity of mind and having humble minds, sympathy and a tender heart. Uh, this, is, this is what drives living to, with one another in an understanding way. Now, when I read what Matt preached last week, um, 1 Peter 3, 7, and the call as a husband to live with my wife in an understanding way, it resonates deeply with me because I don't always understand my wife, right? She may be American like me, but she's a woman, and I'm a man, and there is a lot of this going on. We had this going on this week. We got into an argument. Everybody in the house knew we got into an argument, but fundamentally, we were not understanding each other, and it's so easy to get angry. It's so easy to, to have tension, and fundamentally, I would say in my over a decade in pastoral ministry, most fights, most tensions in the church are not theologically oriented in terms of we're arguing over the doctrines of grace or eschatology. No, fundamentally, we've misunderstood one another. We haven't had a connection. Somebody gets offended. Somebody's mad. Nobody wants to be humble. Nobody's trying to understand the other person. Nobody's saying, well, let me let me, in a tender-hearted way, come and talk to you and, and, and really understand what makes you tick. Now, add to that the fact that I don't know how many nations do we have in the church at this point? 15, 20? I teach at a school that has 23 different nations at our seminary. This happens all the time. Almost all of the fights are, are born out of the fact that the Asians and the Africans can't get along. Or, or the Europeans and, and, and whoever... Can't get along. We got a few Americans sprinkled in there as well. But so much of it is, I don't understand you. I'm not going to love you. I'm not going to fight to understand you. I'm not going to in sympathy say, you know, you might have something worthwhile to say. And, and I really need to hear from you. But that's what this is calling us to. Brotherly love. A love that's humble. When it says unity of mind, it's not speaking of uniformity. I mean, we've got, what, about six or seven leaders right now in the church, and I would dare say that we're not down the line theologically exactly the same on all doctrines. But the call here is to be humble-minded, to be unified in mind around the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, a clarity on the gospel that then informs how we deal with each other on the things that are non-essentials that we don't agree with. So we're unified in what's fundamental, the gospel, right? We show charity in the things where we disagree. Grace in humility, because frankly, if we're humble, we might learn something from one another. We might actually just learn something. Why, you may actually figure out that you don't know it all. I'm kind of speaking to myself here. 
and that I have something to learn. I mean, I find that as a professor, right? I feel like I should know everything, and I'm here to inform you, the students. And I'll walk out of the classroom thinking, God, I hope they're getting something from me because I'm learning so much as I engage with these brothers and sisters on the gospel. All right. Now, now while verse 8 clearly focuses on relationships within the church, brotherly love, now verses 9 through 12 seem to direct us as to how we are to relate to a world that doesn't have the same priorities as we do and may even be hostile to our faith, our way of thinking. It's clearly the case here in Peter. Look again at verses 9 through 12. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And we'll stop right there. I'll come, we'll come to verses 10 uh, through 12 in just a second, which is a quotation from Psalm 34. All right, so he's focused here now on blessing toward uh, adversaries. Would you say in British English, adversaries? That was pretty close, wasn't it? I like to say aluminum as well. <laughs> But you can hear in this passage lots of connections back uh, to chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. So he's talking about that we've been called. We've been called to bless. We're, we're not to have deceit, and we're not to return reviling for reviling. Now, just listen to 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. It's just on your previous page, or if you're on, a, on a, your phone, scroll up or scroll left or right or whatever. Um, 21 through 23, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Fundamentally, what Peter is doing here in our passage this morning is he is applying what Christ modeled for us to our lives, that we would do similarly, that we would do the same. Christ didn't revile. He's on the cross. He's hung naked on a Roman cross suffering for your sins, for my sins. He's bearing the wrath, the infinite wrath of Almighty God. They're hurling abuse upon him. You saved others. You can't save yourself. Hey, come down off the cross, then we'll believe. He didn't revile in return, but what is he saying on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but, but, but he's being reviled. Curses. They're hurling insults at him, and he's returning blessing to them. Because you know what? He could have come down off the cross. Do you know that? He could have come down off the cross, but he couldn't have saved us. Come down off the cross and we'll, we'll believe in you. Well, if he came down off the cross, he wouldn't be worth believing in because he wouldn't have died as the God-man, as our sin-bearing, curse-bearing, curse wrath-assuaging substitute. He, he could not have performed that. 
And so rather than I'll show you, do you ever struggle with the I'll show you? <laughs> you know, you know, revile me. I'll, I'll give you a little something. But no, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. We're called to bless those who revile or do evil to us. This is not most of the time our, atom, our automatic response. I mean, you can just think of trivial examples. Um, getting cut off in traffic. Um, you know, somebody, you know, sometimes you may do something in your job and you're not really doing it to get noticed, but then if nobody says anything, you're kind of like, what's up with that, man? You know, what, I don't get a, at a boy? Come on, you know? I mean, just little ways where we can be upset, much less when people are maligning our character or lying about us, defaming us, gossiping about us, saying things about us that aren't true. And we're like, no, let me set the record straight. I, I didn't do that, that's not me. You're lying about me and we want justice. Peter's saying, we're not supposed to return the maligning for maligning. But what does it mean to bless? What does it mean to bless? Biblically speaking, and I realize this is a massive summary statement, but at the heart of blessing is this, God. God. It's about relationship with God. The context of blessing is covenant. Yes, blessing can include material wealth, children, property, and an overall general wholeness or peace. Probably the only Hebrew word most people would know in the room today would be shalom. And it doesn't mean just peace. It means wholeness, like everything is put right. There's justice, it's beauty, all of that rolled up together, right? That's, a, that's, an, that's an interrelated idea and term to blessing is, is, is peace, shalom. But, but make no mistake about it, God, Jesus Christ is the blessing. Knowing him, the idea of blessing is massively misunderstood in our context. I think in every context because it's typically understood in terms of how my life is going. I'm, I'm blessed if I'm successful, if I have a family. We tend to view stuff as the blessing. And sadly, we can view God or Jesus simply as a means to that end. Jesus becomes the golden ticket, as it were, to get us into the amusement park of heaven. Man, I can't wait to get to heaven. There's gonna be streets of gold. It's gonna be awesome. I mean, when I read Revelation 21 and 22, it's all about the lamb. It's all about the father and the lamb at the center of it and that their glory will fill the whole of it. There's no light. There's no sun, moon, or stars because the glory of God will illumine the whole of it. Streets of gold, bah, nothing. The glory of God, that's something. That's something, right? Jesus isn't the ticket to get you there. He is everything. He is the blessing. 
His salvation is about him. He secured it through his death on the cross, and he is the infinite source of all joy, pleasure, delight. It's God. It's about God. So when we start talking about blessing, we don't want to be like kids on Christmas morning. Who has kids? Who has kids? You know where I'm going with this. And if they're not old enough and you don't know where I'm going with this, you will very soon know what I'm talking about. Try as you may, try as you may. The presents are under the tree. We even go around very, very meticulously, one present at a time so we don't get all crazy and so forth. Nevertheless, it's like, is that, is that my last present? That's my last present, Pre you know? And it's all about the present. It's not about mom and dad who gave the presents who bought the presents, and we don't want to be like that, right? Glory, the blessing, is God. It's not something that he can give you. It's him. If he's not there, I don't want to be there. If Jesus isn't at the center of it, I don't want to be there. This is the way the Bible presents things. It's all about God. And the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we use with our kids again, you know, on again, off again, drilling gospel truth into them and into ourselves. The first question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is spot on. This is a beautiful summary of what scripture teaches. We were made by God for God. We were made for his pleasure and, and to find our ultimate delight and joy and pleasure in him. Again, yes, God does bless people materially. But, but even in the old covenant, land, wealth, children, they were all fulfillments of the promise of the covenant. It wasn't about getting stuff. It was about God establishing a people for himself to reverse the curse of sin and death. So we might say that to bless is to introduce people to God, to introduce them to Jesus who made a way back. He made a way back to bring us back to God by reversing the curse of sin and death through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the heart of the Bible, right? I mentioned it earlier. He, I got a little ahead of myself earlier. I meant to do it here, but I did it there because I got excited, but he, I'm gonna do it again, okay? He, Jesus, took our sin to himself. He, Jesus, took the wrath of Almighty God to himself. The Bible describes his struggle and turmoil in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. He's sweating drops of blood, and then he goes to the cross and he drinks the cup of God's wrath, the cup that God had passed around to the nations. He drinks it down to the dregs for us, for us. Peter says he did this to heal us, to heal us of the contagion of sin, to redeem us, to pull us out of the pit. Oftentimes we're engaged in sin, we're enjoying sin, we don't realize that we're destroying ourselves. I'm gonna say something, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard like in Alaska, the Eskimos will take a big knife and they'll put, they'll, like, put frozen blood all over it 
to try to attract like a wolf or something in. And the wolf's licking the blood and it's liking the blood. And then all of a sudden, it's, it's ingesting its own blood because it's already worn that down. But basically, they're killing themselves by just licking that knife again and again because they've already taken that blood away. Now, oh, Derek, that's just a lovely picture. But that's what we're doing with sin, is it not? We think it's good, we think we're enjoying it, and we are killing ourselves. We are destroying our souls with it. And Jesus, he, come, he came to heal us of that, to reverse the curse, to restore us, to destroy the devil. He's done all of that for us, right? He frees us from sin's bondage. Salvation, salvation from sin into, into a saving relationship, blessing a relationship with God. I wonder this morning, as I'm talking this morning, I'm, I'm wondering if there's somebody here this morning who this is, this is really resonating. Hopefully it's resonating with everybody. But I'm thinking in particular maybe somebody who isn't in Christ. You don't think you're a believer at this point. And, and I would plead with you that this is for you. It's for you. And Jesus said, he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You're crushed. You don't understand what's going on, but you're crushed by the weight of sin. You can't stop doing what you're doing. It's killing you. And you literally cannot stop it. But Jesus says, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. And so he's calling this morning. He's calling. The voice of the good shepherd is calling you to come to him. And right now where you are, you can cry out in your heart. You don't have to pray any kind of prayer. You can just cry out, Jesus, save me. I believe who you are and you can save me. Save me. I plead with you, if you're outside of Christ, to come to him. This is the blessing we give. It's pretty awesome. We're not sprinkling holy water on people or pixie dust or pronouncing everyone blessed or, oh, God bless you because you sneezed. It's not a bad thing to do. It, no, it's, it's our words, it's our actions, it's our behaviors, our responses, especially Peter talking about when we're wronged, when we're maligned, when we're ridiculed, lied about how we respond. The world is watching. We respond with the gospel. Right back in the passage that Matt preached back in chapter 2, we were called out of darkness into light. We were called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. That's the word of blessing we're called to speak. And he says, bless, because to this you were called. That's our calling in Christ. Way back Way back in the beginning when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, he pronounced a curse. This isn't to spell. In the Bible, curse is basically synonymous with judgment. God brought down a curse on the serpent. And in that curse, he made a promise that there would come a deliverer through Eve. The seed of the woman would come and, and crush the serpent's head. Fast forward a little bit, chapters four through 11 of Genesis just are an expose of the brokenness of humanity, the wickedness of humanity, and even the judgment of essentially the whole earth apart from Noah didn't change the heart of man. 
And God calls Abram, later to be called Abraham. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, he calls him, he calls him to bless all the nations through him and through his seed. Right? God's, God's answer to the curse that was brought into the world through our sin is to bless, and it's through Abraham. And listen to Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, God says to Abraham, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was called to bless. God would bless the world through Abraham and his seed. Galatians 3.16 says that it's a seed singular, it's Christ. It's Christ. And it's right. He's, Paul's right. He knows what he's doing. And the purpose, the purpose of the blessing, or the purpose of our blessing others with the gospel is to inherit a blessing, that you may inherit the blessing of eternal life. Now, the language here may put you in a bit of a tension here this morning. If you're following closely, that may put you in a little, little bit of unease. The logic of the text is this, bless, bless, it's a command, bless, so that you may in inherit the blessing of eternal life. Does that sound a little bit like works righteousness to you? It does sound a little bit like works righteousness. Is Peter saying that we're saved because of something we do? Yes and no. Listen carefully. First, no, he's not saying that. He's made it clear that we're saved by God's sovereign grace in Christ. He, chapter 1, has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he is the one enabling us to have a persevering faith in Christ. But second, yes. Yes, he's saying that we will not be saved finally and fully and ultimately. We will not come in to the final eschatological blessing of salvation in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Apart from living a life transformed by that grace. He's saying bless in order that you might inherit blessing. Don't bless don't inherit blessing. Listen to Romans 12, 14 through 21. It speaks similarly. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. It's identical language to Peter. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, I love this verse, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You can't control other people's responses, but so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter is saying, or I'm sorry, Paul is saying the same thing as Peter. Just in case you think Peter's being a little loopy, he's getting off track a little bit, he's not. Paul says the same thing. Indeed, this is what Jesus says. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
Jesus says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes son, his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you hear back in verses 44 through 45 the same sort of purpose clause? He says, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The idea of sonship in the ancient Near East is that sons did what their fathers did. If their father was a blacksmith, he'd be a blacksmith. They, they do the same thing. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to behave like God. This is how God treats his enemies. By the way, if you're a Christian, you were once an enemy. Romans 5. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we were his enemies, verse 10. This is how God treats his enemies. He dies for them. He loves them. And this is the call for us to bless. And now in verses 10 through 12, he drops five verses from Psalm 34. Listen in 1 Peter here to verse 10 through 12. Four. It's an important word. He's giving the basis or the grounds for what he's just said. For whoever desires to love life, life, that's an important word. And see good days, good, that's an important word. Let him keep his tongue from evil, that's an important word. And his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil, again, an important word, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I'm going to have to be quick about this, but when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they're not just going, oh, I really like those words. Those are nice little literary potpourri to sprinkle around what I'm saying. No, no. When they quote, they're eliciting the whole context right? There's a great chapter in a book on intertextuality, and, it's, and the title of the chapter is called The Text is a Joke. Now, it's not running down biblical authority. It's saying that words are symbols that point outside themselves. So, we've all told jokes to kids, and they don't get what the words are pointing to, so they go, nah, ah, ah. they don't really get the joke. You have to understand what the words are pointing to to get the joke, and that is what Peter is doing here. Fundamentally, as I've poured over this this week, it's so stinking clear. Peter was teaching Psalm 34 to them. The psalm, just look at it. It's the psalm of David. David in this psalm is persecuted. He's on the run from Saul. Saul was the king at the time. David was already anointed. But he's on the run from this deranged lunatic who's trying to kill him. God has delivered him over and over again. 
Psalm 34, verse 4, 6, 7, 17, 19, and 22 all point to the fact David's saying, God has delivered me, he's rescued me, he's redeemed me, and now he is leading the people around him into covenant praise. He's saying, come sing with me. Come sing with me. He's my deliverer. And right before the words that are quoted in this passage, he's saying, hey, gather around. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. What's the point? When a man is being hunted like David was being hunted, and he was being hunted by Saul, threw, I think, at least twice a spear at him and almost pinned him to the wall, there were moments where he's hunting David and God is literally giving Saul into David's hands and, and, and all of David's people are saying, kill him, kill him. And he's saying, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. He's trusting, he's entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. This is the language of Peter and it's what David was doing. He's entrusting himself. He's like, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed, but God's gonna deliver me. Hey, fear the Lord. What is he talking about? Well, Jesus said it beautifully when he said, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. That's who we need to fear. See, when we fear God, we don't fear anything else. Right? And, and that's what he's teaching in the psalm. And that's what's pulsating here in this call to bless. You can bless those who curse you because God, God has his eyes on the righteous. Maybe you read that this morning and you think, oh yeah, God's just staring me down. He's got his notebook out and he's taking notes and he's wagging his finger. That's not what this language is saying. It's saying he's watching us. He loves us, right? And he's attentive to our prayers. Now he's against the unrighteous, it does say that. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this passage is a call, a call to bless. It's a call to life, to turning away from evil and doing good. It is a call to bless. It is a call to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. It is a call to look to the one who saves our soul. Your blessed life now does good, pursues peace even when afflicted. It turns away from deceit and evil. Your blessed life now lives constantly under God's watchful eye. He is sovereign and he is good. Your blessed life now entrusts judgment to God. Entrusts judgment to God. He's the one who judges, not us. And that's hard. Like, yeah, I get it, but God, I really want them to pay for it. I, I, really, I really would like for there to be some justice right now. And I don't know what you're walking through in life. I don't know what difficulties you face. I don't know what wrongs you've experienced. But the cross of Christ tells us that God will, God will execute justice fully, and totally, either in the cross or in the judgment to come. And I think when we really think about judgment, even if somebody's done terrible things to us, do we really want them in hell for all eternity? Right, we were enemies once, 
This leads us to pray. This leads us, and this is funneling into, the, into my conclusion here. This leads us to pray, to proclaim, and to persevere in entrusting ourselves to others. And have you ever heard anybody say something like, they're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Have you ever heard that? Maybe that's an Americanism. Peter says just the opposite in this passage. If we're going to be of any good for the kingdom on earth, if you're going to actually see blessing, the blessing of the new heavens and the new earth, then that future grace must be transforming your life right now. And it must be informing how you respond to situations. Your blessed life now and later does not mean earthly success, one victory after another. It means that we're living for eternity now, which means the future grace of God is transforming us in the here and now. Theology, right doctrine, right thinking has extreme earthly practicality. It means returning blessing, good, and life in the place of curse, evil, and death. It means no retaliation, no vigilante justice, no, I used to say, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was, for me, it was more, before I was a Christian, it was more like an eye for an arm and a leg and a head, you know. None of that. None of that. It's an entrusting ourselves to him. It's a call to pray, proclaim, and persevere in entrusting. Pray. I mentioned Abraham earlier. If you read the narrative, in Genesis 18, God shows up at his tent. It's Abraham, it's two angels. It's a really cool story. And they're promising that Isaac is going to be born. Right? Because Abraham's faith isn't perfect. It's really great the way the Bible shows us warts and all. You know, Jesus is the only great one in Scripture. But he's talking to the angels and he says, I, I should tell I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I should tell Abraham what I'm about to do. He's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And now Abraham enters into this, but what if there's 50? Will the judge of the earth do justly? What if there's 50? What if there's 45? What if there's, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? And there wasn't 10, but do you see? He's interceding for people. He's praying for people. He is called to bless and he is interceding. When wronged, do we pray? Do we plead with God on behalf of those who hurt us? To give them ears and eyes and hearts to believe the gospel as we have, that they might repent and believe the gospel? We're called to proclaim. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a people for a holy nation, a people over his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once we, you had not received mercy, but now you have. We were once have-nots, and now we, now we are the haves. He showed us mercy. Now we are called to declare him, blessed by introducing others to our Savior. Here's the irony this is actually what will get you in trouble. You start talking to people about Jesus, now you're going to experience a little bit of persecution. 
once you start talking to people about Jesus, it's going to go kind of like this. Well, I'm glad Jesus works for you. You kind of need that religious crutch. Oh, no, 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 no. Everybody needs that. We're so broken that, you know, God sent his son to die, right? So if you don't need this, and that's a huge divine overreactment, right? God's saying you do need him. What? You're saying I'm a sinner? You're saying I'm going to hell? Okay, now they got a problem with you. And we continue to bless. And finally, persevering and entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. This is really, I think, persevering in the fear of the Lord, which is at the center of Psalm 34. God will judge, so I don't need to. Do we believe that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you have done everything for us, everything for life, for godliness. Lord, you have provided for our salvation. And even in providing for our salvation, you provide us an example of how we are to respond when persecuted, when maligned, when insulted. Father, help us. Help us to do better than simply treating Jesus like a ticket to the amusement park of heaven. Father, help us to live in light of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.